Look at verse 8 again. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. As the scribes and the Pharisees came from Jerusalem to observe Jesus on this day, to observe the disciples and the way the disciples lived on this day, they immediately noted a violation of their expectations, of their traditions, of their external procedures, and so they asked Jesus about it. In verse 2 of chapter 15, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. The answer to this question that they ask in verse 2 is what forms the context and the situation for everything that Jesus taught in chapter 15 from verses 1 to verse 20. And the reason that it forms the backdrop for everything that's being taught in these verses is because the question itself revealed at least two wicked and blasphemous sins, both lived out and promoted by these visiting religious leaders. Two terrible sins that Jesus openly rebuked and openly corrected in his quotation of the prophet Isaiah in verses 7 and 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we looked at the first of their corrupt and terrible and wicked sins two weeks ago. And that first sin was this, that the scribes and the Pharisees made a practice, as you see in chapter 15, verse 9, of teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or to put it another way, they elevated extra-biblical man-made traditions, teaching, organizations, or works to the same level, or in their case specifically, even worse, to a higher level of authority than God's very Word itself. They they elevated this tradition of the elders, that phrase that you see in verse 2, the tradition of the elders, meaning the teachings of the rabbis over the centuries, to a higher level of authority than God's very breathed out word among the people of Israel. But we know that God's word is given to us in the Bible, that God's word given to us in the Bible is, as Jesus makes explicit in the rebuke of the Pharisees' dependence upon the tradition of the elders in our text, Jesus himself said, the commandment and the word of God itself is in Scripture. And so therefore, the sole and final authority in all matters of faith, in life, and in practice for the person who believes in the Lord is Scripture. And this is a non-negotiable truth. If you truly trust Christ, you will tremble at His Word. You will honor His Word. You will submit to His Word and strive to obey His holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word. And we must always be on guard. Each and every one of us must always be on guard against anybody, against anything, against any work, against any organization that would set itself up as a rival or a supposed challenger to this seat of primary authority held by Scripture and Scripture alone. 
It could be self-idolatry that challenges the authority of Scripture in your life. In other words, wanting and loving your sin more than you want or love God's command. And so laboring to try and make Scripture permit or encourage or celebrate your sinful desires because you somehow want to cling to both God and feel good about your situation before God and hold on to your sin at the very same time. But Scripture makes it clear, these two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot have both. You can either love yourself and have yourself in the seat of primary authority in your life, or you can have God and there is no mingling of the two. It could be cultural morals that are striving against the Scripture's seat of authority in your life. It could be the values, the pressures, or the threats that our culture is leveling against the people who love and serve and want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, which could lead us to editing or to adjusting or erasing or ignoring or deconstructing the clear Word of God in such a way that we find ourselves being acceptable to the culture. Now, if the culture loves you as a Christian, you should probably revisit your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ's word. We want to find, though, it's part, of our, it's part of our nature, isn't it, to want to find a way to be acceptable to the world and also loved by God at the same time. But James 4.4 4 is very, very clear. If you make yourself a friend to the world, by so doing, you become an enemy of God. The two, again, the love of the world, editing God's word or... or the authority of God and His Word in your life are mutually exclusive. You choose one or you choose the other. Or again, it could be extra-biblical works and extra-biblical teachers that tell you or that claim authority for themselves in a way that supersedes God's Word. We're actually seeing this type of thing in the professing Christian church of our own day. There are churches and organizations out there that make some wild and spectacular claims for themselves, such as apostolic authority has been resumed. And there are in those movements, therefore, people who claim to speak with the same authority as Scripture does. Or even worse, they claim to speak in a way that Scripture can't or that they have a higher authority than Scripture itself. Right now, for example, Bethel Church in Redding, California, if this is one of the largest, if not the largest, non-Roman Catholic movement that attaches itself to the label Christianity, along with its exports like worship bands with far-reaching influence like that of Jesus Culture, if you listen to Jesus Culture, throw it away, are making inroads among numerous artists and Christian leaders all across the world. Christian leaders that we might have appreciated in the past, Christian worship leaders that we might have appreciated in the past are teaming up with and now promote this new apostolic reformation, it's called. Remember I said, they claim the apostles are back. That's, the, that's what they title themselves, new apostolic reformation. And this is simply another form of blasphemy. And sadly, it's only the latest in the long line of attempts to subject the Word of God to our whims and our desires and our passions as humans. It's a common practice, isn't it? 
And we all must fight it because you know, you know yourself very well. I know myself very well. And I know that we are all engaged in a battle. We are all engaged with a war inside ourselves with our own sin. And some in the power of the Spirit keep laboring in obedience to the Apostle Paul's command to put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And we strive and we struggle and we fight and we try to wage this war against sin in obedience to the commands of God in Scripture. But then there are others who simply give up and they want to try a new strategy. How do I keep my sin because it's too hard to fight against it and have the love of the world and the love of, or the love of God? Creating an easier version of the Christian life. But we know that God has spoken to us. We know that God has revealed everything we need to know for a life of service, for a life of obedience to Him on earth, in Scripture, as we have it. And so as the people of God, we reject all attempts to lessen or challenge the authority of God's Word. We reject any and all attempts to weaken, to chip away at the primacy of God's Word. And we instead fix our eyes upon and conform our lives to the will of God, to the Word of God, to the revelation of God as given to us in Scripture. So let us profess along with King David a deep and abiding love for God's Word as he did when he wrote the longest love song in Scripture. Now, the longest love song in Scripture, it isn't from a man to a woman. It isn't from a woman to a man. It isn't from anyone to their pet. It isn't from anything like that. It is a man singing a love song to God's Word. Psalm 119. David there says in verses 9 to 16, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not Forget your word. Amen. That was two weeks ago. And the first nine minutes of today. The second wicked and grave error that is practiced and promoted by the scribes and the Pharisees in Christ's day, according to our text, was the honoring of God. Look at verses, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 8. Was the honoring of God with their lips but their heart is far from Him. Honoring God with their lips, but their heart is far from Him. Now, if you've been going to church for any length of time, and even if you haven't, you probably have heard this time about the time when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, and a Pharisee, someone we know as the rich young ruler, came up to Jesus and he asked him a question. The, teacher, the, the lawyer asked Jesus, saying this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus looked at him and answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Meaning that those who profess faith in God, who profess faith in Christ, must actually love Christ. We must look to Him in faith 
for all things. We must recognize Him for who He is. He is the Lord, slow to anger. He is the Lord who is abounding in steadfast love, who is rich in mercy and overflowing in grace to everyone who truly calls upon His name. He is the God who so generously provides for and protects His children. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our safe harbor in this chaotic and storm-tossed world. And for all these reasons and oh so many more, we love Him from the very center of our being. We follow and we obey God's Word out of a heart that is filled with gratitude to Him and thanksgiving, knowing that when you and I enjoy anything in this world rightly, it is His good gift to us. When you and I have food on our tables, when you and I have clothes on our backs, when we have a roof over our heads, know this, that every single one of these things is a good, gracious, and generous gift from the hand of God to you. As is the very breath we breathe, every single one, in and out. Thank you, Lord, for that breath. Because it belongs to Him. Because He is life itself. And He blesses you and I with so great of a gift. But most wonderfully... We live in thanksgiving and gratitude to our God because He showed the depths of His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, He sent His Son to die on a cross so that we might live if we call out to Him in faith. All and all who call upon His name for salvation will be saved. God showed His love to the world. God showed His love in the clearest picture ever for you in this, that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish eternally, but have instead, in place of eternal perishing, eternal abundant life. So for all who truly turn to the Lord in faith and recognize His attributes, his perfect character, his wonderful nature, and all of the benefits that accrue from being one of his children, how can we not love him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength? How can we not freely give to him our hearts? And hearts here means the totality of who we are in thought in word, in deed, in emotion, in life, in everything. How can we not? Because this is what the Lord has called for from Israel for their history. Through the prophet Isaiah, for example, he called on them to think that they could not simply honor God with their lips while their heart remained far from Him. They could not simply go through the motions thinking that if I just do this and I just do that and I just do this, that that would placate or that would satisfy or that would appease God if their hearts were far from Him. As if, as if the observance of simple rules, like the washing of hands before eating, while at the same time holding on to a heart filled with sin and filled with wickedness and filled with bitterness and filled with idolatries, as if we can just simply go through these motions and think that our hearts being far from Him doesn't mean anything and that we please the Lord simply by doing our external rituals. Listen, this does not please the Lord. 
It is not the washing of hands that defiles a person, meaning the external acts that we do, Jesus will say in this text, but it is the state of your heart before the Lord that determines your acceptability to Him. You and I can do all the good works that we want. We can read the Bible not once following our Bible reading plan. We can read it ten times in a year. We could come to church every Sunday. We could do it all. And if our heart is far from the Lord, if our heart is not devoted to the Lord, dedicated to the Lord, renewed by the Lord, fixed upon the Lord, then all of those works mean absolutely nothing. Less than nothing. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that they actually inspire the anger of the Lord. This was made clear over and over again by the prophets. The Lord could not have been any clearer about this in the Old Testament and even in the New. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord described through the prophet the disobedient and rebellious nation of Israel saying this, Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And yet, and yet, even though Israel refused to repent, refused to trust in, refused to lean on, refused to love the Lord their God with all of their hearts, even though their hearts were corrupt before Him, even though their hearts were, as He says here, estranged from Him, they still continued to offer the sacrifices that were prescribed for them in Leviticus day in and day out, over and over and over again. And they repeatedly celebrated the festivals that had been commanded for them by the Lord, believing that if we do these things, if we offer these bulls and we celebrate the Passover, these will be enough to appease and satisfy the Lord. But what did the Lord have to say about such a state of affairs? What does the Lord have to say about honoring Him with lips and deeds while the heart is far from Him? Listen again to the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Those are some pretty heavy words. Vain offerings such as these, sacrifices and rituals without a heart of faith and devotion to the Lord are quite vividly described by him as one, that which he does not delight in. Two, a trampling of his courts. Three, something he cannot endure. Four, an abomination to him. Five, his soul 
hates them. That's all from that text in Isaiah 1, 11 to 15. And why? Why is it that the Lord hates and, and all of those things? Because God demands your heart. The offerings and the obedience that God delights in are those that come from a heart bursting with faith and trust in Him. Who out of a heart that is so thankful to Him for who He is, for all He has done, for all He is doing, for all He will do, they joyfully serve and obey Him. But again, to simply go through the motions to rest our position with God on rituals and externals that, w- without any real devotion to God, is unacceptable to Him. And while the wording in Isaiah 1 was strong, listen to what He said in Isaiah 66. Listen to the powerful comparisons that the Lord uses here. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like the one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like the one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Did you hear that? To make offerings in this pharisaical, religious way without a heart that is devoted to God, to make offerings to the Lord as mere external rituals while your heart is far from Him is pictured here by the Lord as offering pig's blood and like one who blesses an idol. Two of the most awful things you could imagine in the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament as well. Later, Jesus would rebuke this pharisaical tendency, that of focusing on your externals, of making sure you look really good on the outside, look really spiritual on the outside, while your heart remains unrenewed or far from the Lord or filthy before the Lord. In Matthew 23, you remember it when he said this to the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, this is a consistent teaching throughout Scripture. To honor God externally while your heart is far from Him is, as Matthew 15, 9 tells us, the very definition of vain, meaningless, unprofitable worship. And yet, and yet, even with all of this clarity throughout the Old Testament, even in the face of this obvious call and command of the Lord, these scribes and these Pharisees come to Jesus on this day still with a system that they managed to create and encourage that was almost entirely focused on externals, rituals, and work without any consideration of the heart as one's path to righteousness and acceptability before the Lord. These religious leaders 
in Israel had, rather than hearing and obeying the word of God through the prophets, to first love him with all of their hearts and then to obey him out of a heart filled with gratitude to him, instead violated these commands and replaced them with a complicated system of works by which they judged themselves and others as either, as either righteous before God or condemned before God. And over the centuries, these rules and these laws and these rituals and these ceremonies, they multiplied and they expanded to the point where most of the people in Israel couldn't even begin to dream of keeping and maintaining that standard. And this is always what externally focused religion does. As rules set out by the scribes and Pharisees emphasized what they did for God rather than on what God had done for them or what a God has done for us. As they followed their own set of external traditions and expectations rather than loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength. As they honed in on and made the disciples not washing their hands before eating the main point of exclusion here in this interaction. Rather than investigating the hearts of the disciples whether they are devoted to the Lord or not. The washing of hands became more important than repentant faithful dedication to the Lord from the heart. Because we know that God is altogether good. We know that God is merciful and that God is gracious to those who call out to Him. Jesus knows that too. Jesus knows that our salvation is not based upon a set of externals, but based on the renewing of the heart by grace through faith in Himself. And so on this day, on chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus took it upon himself to call the people to him. You see that? He called the people to him. Meaning, there were crowds listening to this exchange. And in order to teach them about the errors of the Pharisees, and this is one of the most damnable errors in all of Scripture, that of believing you can be saved by works. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that if anyone comes to you teaching that your salvation is based on any combination of works and, and faith, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Let them be cut off. Now, just for clarity's sake, I want to make sure that we recognize the problem here isn't the actual rituals or externals themselves. They aren't bad or wrong in and of themselves. When, for example, a faithful Israelite brought their bull and brought their goat to the tabernacle to offer them to the Lord in accordance with His command, when they celebrated Passover year after year after year, and when they became ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and followed the, the rules that God had, had laid out for them to become clean again and able to worship the Lord at the temple, each of these things practiced with a heart of devotion was wonderful. They were commendable. And the same is true for us. It is a good thing to read God's Word. It is a good thing for us to gather and observe communion together. It is a good thing for us to celebrate, like we did last week, the baptism of our fellow believers. It's a good thing for us to gather at each week at 10 a.m. to sing songs of praise to the Lord, to pray to Him, to hear the preaching and exposition of His Word. These are all good customs and habits. The problem doesn't lie with any of the habits in and of themselves, provided they are commanded by or acceptable to God. The issue lies in the why. Why do we take part in these things? 
if you take part in them because you, like the Pharisees, seek or desire some sort of self-exaltation, if you desire to create some sort of pathway to self-righteousness, some path to status in setting yourself over and against others because you do all these things that spiritual people are just simply supposed to do, then you are acting like a Pharisee. If you create some set of rules and rituals and traditions for you to live by and believe that your particular standards secure for you the goodwill of God, you are acting like a Pharisee. If you take those standards that you create for yourself and then use those rules to both justify yourself, to feel good about yourself and your standing before God, while using that same set of external standards to judge and condemn others who don't measure up to your particular set of standards or hold to your particular set of self-made rules, you are a Pharisee imitator. You see, the Pharisees believed because they followed their own set of traditions and rules that God loved them more than anyone else. That they were God's A-team. They were the real people of God. They were His favorites. And we too, if we aren't careful, can start to feel very much the same way about ourselves. That we, because we adhere to and follow our own opinions, I mean, you hold your opinions because you think they're right. But when those opinions begin to become thoughts and, and regulations by which you judge and condemn or accept others based on their acceptance of your opinions or rules or whatever, then you act like a Pharisee. If you think that your opinions and your sets of rules are better and more spiritual and closer to God than those who don't follow your standards, that is, according to the Lord, a most wicked and heinous and vain practice. Unless, of course, they are explicitly biblical. And over the years, large segments of the Christian populace have struggled with this all-too-common human weakness. Because if you think about it, you know that the default position of humanity is works-based righteousness. The default position of humanity is to try to earn salvation or to try to earn acceptability before God. If you look at all of the major religions in the world, every single one of them is based on this idea that you can work or earn your way to God by following sets of externals. We think we can gain acceptability and righteousness in the eyes of God by efforts and deeds and actions. This is the touch point. This is the foundation of all world religion except for that of following Jesus Christ. Following Christ means we are saved purely by the magnificent, wonderful grace of God through faith in Him. And this is a radical departure from the default position of humanity all across the world throughout the ages couple of examples. Hinduism. 330 million gods in the, in, in the Hindu pantheon who must be satisfied by a system of rituals and works. And so there are a number of statues and carved idols to bow down to. They must also focus on the achievement of what they call moksha, which is Hindu heaven. But to get there, 
A number of external things must be done, must be practiced, must be bowed down to, must be offered. And, it might, and in, according to their, the Hindu religion, it takes lifetimes to get there. As you live one good life, you move up to the next, you move up to the next, you move up to the next. One of the external things that, they must, that must be done is yoga. That's a big one. While many might think it's simply an exercise to improve your flexibility and whatnot, for, for the Hindu, the practicing Hindu, yoga is one, as one writer puts it, a means of dying to one's body in hope of delivering one's self from the physical realm. By this external act, Hindus believe that they yoke themselves to Brahman, the highest deity in Hinduism. It's all about externals. If you go to Buddhism, again, it's a number of works, rules, and laws, and by the, the hard work of the Buddhist, they can achieve something called nirvana. Or on Islam, at the judgment day, Allah will weigh the scales and weigh the works of those who followed him on a scale, and should the, work, should the scale tip in the direction of good works, you're all in. If the, direction, the scale should tip in the direction of, of bad works, you're out. And even within much of professing Christianity, there are a number of groups that teach certain works are necessary for one's salvation. Some will say it's baptism. Some will say it's the sacraments. Some will say it's joining this specific organization and following all the rules and regulations of that organization. That's one of the reasons why when you listen to the pastors here when we were about to take communion or we're about to lead you in baptism, we make it clear, baptism doesn't save you. Communion doesn't save you. They are memorials and celebrations that we commit to out of love for and devotion to God. But we do not rest in them as works that win or secure the favor of God. But there have been times and seasons when in in uh, the professing church, while we might not come out and say it, our practice has indicated by our words and our deeds and our dispositions that salvation doesn't depend on the state of our hearts primarily, but on following certain traditions and externals, right? Even followers of Christ, true followers of Christ, can succumb to and be prone to serving up heaping spoonfuls of condemnation to one another because of externals, right? And while we are told to refrain from judging each other, and what we mean by judgment in the context that Christ used it is condemnation or punitive retribution whereby we degrade other people for the sake of elevating ourselves in our own and in other people's eyes. In other words, Pharisee-type judgment. Even though we're told not to do that, there are many times and seasons when such judgments are alive and well, even within the professing church community. In some circles, we see it in those who cast terrible judgments on others, going so far as to question their commitment to Christ because they don't follow their particular external or extra-biblical belief. In the past, I've heard preachers and Christians come down hard on certain haircuts whether women can wear pants in church, whether the King James is the only Bible that a Christian can use, what type of music can be used in the praise and worship of God, whether drums and guitars are acceptable, whether it's organ or piano that's acceptable. And even over the last two years, I have heard much judgment and condemnation from fellow God-fearing Christians for their primary focus being on the Word of God in either Romans 13 or Hebrews 10. 
As some focused on Romans 13, saying, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And those who focused on this text tended to have more pharisaical than condemning tones about those, than the, about those who focused on following the word of God in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Much focus on these externals. And it seems like for a time we forgot that a heart devoted to Christ is the most important factor to consider. When we come to church and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we could sing, I'll just use that as an example, we could sing because we like the tune or we like the style. We could sing because it's the habit for us to do that. We could sing because that's what we're simply supposed to do. We could sing because I don't want to look unspiritual to everybody that's around me. Or we could sing because we love Christ and we love pouring out our hearts and our voices in song to the Lord Jesus Christ. We could become pharisaical even just now as we sit and listen to a sermon, thinking to ourselves, boy, oh boy, I hope that so-and-so is listening to this. That's what a Pharisee would do. We could become Pharisees when we compare our Christian lives to others. And we set our life and our opinions up as the standard for Christian maturity by which we judge Christian maturity in somebody else. We can become Pharisees when our Christianity is more focused on what we do than whose we are. The primary thing for us to consider is, is the person in front of me does Christ own that person as a child? That should govern how we respond to each other. But so much of our lives have been focused on laboring to make others see things our way and judging and condemning them when they don't. Whether it's the last two years or whether it's just life in general, this is a common theme for humanity. And we'll go so far as to call into question the faith of others and the relationship to God that others possess based on how they accept or believe what we are telling them to accept or believe. We can be so easily fooled, like the Pharisees were, into judging both our own and others' spiritual maturity or the truth of another's confession by their allegiance to our created rules. So often we can think that we and others are sanctified by controlling the externals around us, both our own and that of others. Far too often we can base our assessments of another and even more of our own Christian life on our beliefs and opinions about externals rather than saying, I love Jesus, I've given my heart to Jesus and I may not be perfect yet, but I am working at it by the power of the Holy Spirit in me in obedience to the command of Jesus. Do not forget the fact that our salvation, yours and your brother and your sister who sits next to you, our salvation wholly depends upon our relationship to Christ. Our salvation is secured by grace through faith in Christ, our trust in Christ, our reliance upon Christ. It's Christ's saving work at the cross. 
Remember this truth, that at the cross, Christ took all of our sin. He took all of our shame. He took all of our impurities and our uncleannesses upon Himself. Jesus bore the full and total weight of God's furious and righteous wrath for your sin, for my sin, in our place. I deserved to die. You deserved to die. But Christ died in our place and He drank the cup of God's wrath right down to the bottom. Meaning that all who are truly in Christ, all who truly believe in Him, here is the promise of Scripture that is given to you. In, in, in reference to God, there is now therefore no condemnation no matter what another person might do or say to you. And for you who like to judge other people by your particular standards, that person you are judging, if it's merely based on externals, your judgment means nothing because there is no condemnation for them in the eyes of God. So we must be careful to see and to respond to others, not primarily by externals, but by the state of hearts before God. This is what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 15 as he called the crowds to himself to correct and rebuke the lies and the errors of the Pharisees. In essence, he's telling them here, you have heard it said that you are defiled if you don't follow the tradition of the elders and ritually wash your hands before every single meal. But that's absolute foolishness. Because such a practice, such a ritual, it's neither here nor there. In issues and matters of defilement, what truly matters is the state of your heart before Christ. Is your heart evil? Because if so, the evil present in your heart is now or will eventually reveal itself. And this, Jesus said, is what defiles a person. An evil heart. It's for this reason that Scripture tells us over and over again that God searches the heart, that He examines the heart, that God still searches the heart and examines the heart of everyone who would approach Him. This is what Moses said to the people of Israel way back during their time in the wilderness. When the Lord reestablished the covenant with them on a second set of stone tablets, He exhorted Israel saying this, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So you see that? The idea here is that the Lord will not be bought with, He will not be put into debt by anyone's externals. But instead, He goes right past all of that and He examines the heart of those who would approach Him in worship. Because listen, you and I have nothing to offer Him. We have nothing to offer Him that doesn't already belong to Him. You and I are like children who go to our parents and ask them for money so that we can buy those same parents their birthday presents. Joshua also called the people of Israel when they finally secured the promised land, saying this, Put away your foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And when the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel saw Eliab, the son of Jesse, and thought to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord responded to Samuel and said, Do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And when King Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he stretched out his hands toward heaven, and he prayed this, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The Lord made it also clear through the prophet Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And Proverbs 21.2 declares, The Lord weighs the heart. And David, when crying out to the Lord in prayer in Psalm 26, prayed, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. And at the end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, we see Christ declaring to the church of Thyatira that all churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So over and over again, the Lord called his people to a religion of the heart. And from that full, uh, that heart filled with love for and to the Lord, we obey his will and his commands in Scripture. But the Pharisees bypassed the heart and simply honed in on obedience to the will and the command believing that simple obedience made them righteous before God. They transformed the obvious and clear call of God to honor Him from the heart into an externally, externally, based, or externally focused religion based on works. And why? Why would somebody do that? Why would people do that? To make it easier to maintain their grip on power, status, and to avoid humble dependence on God that has been called for by God. But Jesus said in 1511 that the state of one's heart will always proceed out from a person. He said, Hear and understand it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. See, the Pharisees are going to tell you that it's what you do on the outside. It's what's going in that's going to defile you or make you acceptable to God or not. But Jesus here said it's not the mere observance or lack thereof of externals that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth. And meaning that it, defilement is an issue of the heart. That mouth by which we complain and slander and curse and defame and dishonor and blaspheme, this is the instrument by which our hearts, the state of our hearts, are revealed. In other words... While culture might want to separate who we are and what we do so that we can say, I'm a good person, I just do bad things every so often, Scripture tells us that what you do and what you say proceed from your heart. What you do and what you say reveal who you are deep down. It reveals what fills up your heart. It reveals your true nature. What is it you speak about? Think about it for a second. Ponder your words. Examine what it is that comes out of your mouth and you will know what it is that fills up your heart. 
Is your speech all about the issues and the politics of the earth? That's what's got your heart. Is it peppered with cursing and swearing and blasphemies? Is it filled up with yourself, your money, lewdness or impropriety? Is it consistently talking about sex and sexuality, power, antagonism, slander, strife, division, quarreling? Or is your speech filled with Christ, grace, mercy, love, encouragement, exhortation, edification, all of these benefits of serving Him with our lives? Is your, is your speech filled with charity and filled with compassion and filled with grace? What is it that you talk about most? How are your words used? Are they used as weapons of harm or are they used as vehicles of grace? Know this, the words you speak manifest the depths and the character of your heart. The words you speak reveal who you are on the inside. And again, as much as our culture would like to disconnect the heart from who we are in our words and in our action, as much as culture hopes to trick itself into believing the heart is basically good, regardless of what we do and what we say, Jesus here makes it abundantly and unmistakably clear. Your heart is revealed and described. You are clarified and illustrated by what comes out of your mouth. And note, this is a reality that is taught numerous times in Scripture as well. Proverbs 15.8 The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 15.2 The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours out folly. Psalm 37 The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice, the law of, God, of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Do you see that? The connection of heart and what comes out of the mouth. And in James, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So Christ here is saying to the crowds that it's not the externals that defile. It's the state of our heart. The state of our heart reveals either our cleanness or defilement. And this greatly offended the Pharisees that Jesus said that. Look at 15.12. Do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And the reality is, of course they were, because Jesus had just taken a metaphorical sledgehammer to their entire religious system. And he had just swung that hammer with all of his might and demolished the very pillars that supported their religious system. And as a result, their hatred of Christ grew hotter and grew stronger. Because this is always the case. When those focused on external religion are rebuked and called to re obey God's call for the heart, they too, perhaps you too, will be offended, appalled, tripped up, filled with disgust, angered, and shocked by a call to true repentance and faithfulness. So listen, if you're depending on your external works and you're judging others as righteous or unrighteous, as Christian or non-Christian, as mature or immature, based on your standard of externals without checking the devotion of their heart to the Lord, Christ is here demolishing the entirety of your false religion. And see how Jesus referred to the scribes and Pharisees who depended on this religious system. Look, he called them blind guides in chapter, verse 14. You see that? Blind guides. They lead those who follow them to fall into a pit with them. Are you a blind guide leading people to fall into a pit? Or are you following a blind guide on your way to the pit? What is more important to you in your relationship with other believers? 
their heart before Christ or their agreement with you on externals. One of these is obedience to Christ. The other is pharisaical wickedness. Ponder your own Christian walk. Ponder the influence you have on those around you. Are you one who inspires others to greater love for and devotion to Christ for all that he's done for us? Are you promoting and leading others in the path of life? Or are you, have you been a blind guide leading others to fall into a pit? Know this, this is serious business. These are issues of eternal life and eternal death. It's always appropriate to examine your heart because, as Scripture tells us, Christ will examine it. And Christ explained it to Peter, whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, meaning externals don't defile. Physical food or literal dirty hands can't defile, can't cause any moral defilement before God, neither can your external traditions being applied to somebody else make them defiled before the Lord. Verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. An unrenewed, unregenerate heart without true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A heart that is not aimed at and in love with Him. The unwashed, uncleansed heart. This is what defiles a person as do the actions that arise from a defiled heart. That's what Jesus says in verse 20. The heart is, in this sense, the very center of a person. It's that which governs your life. And if your heart isn't renewed and you are defiled, out of that heart will come what he says in verse 19. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what what defile a person. But the eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. External rules alone do not solve or address our great need, but they can hinder us greatly. To be righteous before God, to be forgiven of your sin, to be adopted into the family of God is our greatest need. But our society, along with the rest of the world, seems to assume that being a good person externally And by that we mean doing good things and trusting in our externals will secure us goodwill and favor of God. But listen, if you get anything from this, if you get anything from what we are talking about this morning, what Jesus has talked about here, they cannot. No amount of singing in church, no amount of reading the Bible, no amount of waving your finger in righteous judgment in the faces of others can ever expel the evil of your own heart. Your heart must be renewed by grace through faith in Christ. And if you would be saved this morning, you must recognize that you are defiled, that you are a sinner by nature and by action, that you must repent of your sin and call out to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Because it is by His work on the cross, dying there in your place and bearing in Himself the penalties for your sin, It is by His righteous, perfect, and sinless life applied to your account upon faith in Him that you are made acceptable to God. And if you should call out to Him in faith, you will be forgiven, you will be cleansed, your heart will be renewed, and you will, to His great glory and credit, be saved. Father, we praise You and thank You for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning.
Lord, I thank you that it so clearly corrects a human practice and habit, that of believing or slipping into this idea that our relationship with you is somehow based on externals, that the relationship of others in our sphere of community, their relationship with you is based on externals, but your word is oh so crystal clear. Our relationship with you is based on your grace dispensed upon us as we cry out to you in faith. So Lord, I pray that you would be challenging each and every one of us if we have been blind guides leading people into the pit, that we would repent of that. If, we have been con- if we've spoken in condemning terms and judgmental terms of others, much like the Pharisees did with Christ and his disciples, that we would repent of that and that our speech would be seasoned with salt and that our hearts would be revealed as ones that are right before you, that are devoted to you, that are fully captured by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this is only something that you can do in your miraculous power by your amazing Holy Spirit. And we plead for it to become our reality today. In Jesus' name, amen.